Mr. Fraser Crane. I'm listening. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson's Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, station manager, guru, potentate, Eric Crema, and a good friend of ours. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. And a happy weekend to you all, wherever you may be. Today, once again, we get to work with tall guy Nathan Miller. Always glad to have him on board. Nathan, how are you doing? Good morning, Gary and Suzanne. And I'm looking forward to today's show and experiencing everything in the best Seattle way possible. You know, it's going from downpouring rain to no rain to windy and some thunderstorms and who knows what the heck the weather is doing typical seattle and best fashion to experience the show in yeah glad to hear that we talk once in a while about baseball so the texas rangers huh first ever world series yeah crossing off more of those teams that have Yet to win a World Series, and the Mariners, you know, among them are probably the weakest of them all because they haven't even appeared in the World Series. So Wait till next year. Suzanne's an old Chicago (laughs) Cubs fan. She knows what that means. (laughs) Yeah, we waited 108 years. A lot of people were born, lived, and died and never saw the Cubs win a World Series. And uh, we finally did that. Well, good for in the Rangers. 2016. Maybe next year the Mariners. We hope. Yeah, I After hope 1908. so too. Yeah. <laughs> that little broken record that keeps repeating itself is still true for the Mariners. And about this World Series, uh, gotta say though, I mean, as much as I was looking forward to having a World Series where I didn't really mind who won. I was kind of disappointed that it was a very lopsided World Series, it seemed like, and it just wasn't, you know, a competitive, competitive? one like I wanted yeah. it to be. So yeah, didn't really have much interest in watching it after, you know, the Rangers would get a five-run lead above the Diamondbacks, and it's like, oh, there goes another one for the Rangers. I but, felt the same way watching uh, Stanley Cup games, yeah. watching the hockey games. Once somebody was like really far ahead it was like oh you know that's not all that interesting <laughs> it's nice when it's more competitive more exactly even. but yep. next year when the mariners are in it you know next year all right <laughs> no M's. today we get to talk once again with harriet basket fifth time fifth time she Take has so much her. to say we we can't we we'd have to talk to her for 10 hours to get it all in <laughs> and she has written the book an updated version as a matter of fact 111 places in Seattle that you must not miss. Should we give her her man props? Go for it. Harriet Baskus is an author and journalist who has produced radio documentaries on everything from early cowgirls to offbeat museums and written eight books about unusual attractions, hidden museum treasures, and airports around the world. She served as the general manager of three community radio stations in the Pacific Northwest and now reports on travel and the arts for a variety of national outlets and for her blog, stuckattheairport.com. And we are happy to talk to her for the fifth time, Harriet Baskus. So good to have you with us today, Harriet. Delighted to be back for the fifth time. For the fifth time, because we can't cover all 111 things immediately, but there are so many really fascinating, fascinating places in and around Seattle. 
And in order not to stump you too much, we we do talk about like what we would like to talk about. Gary, what do you want to talk about first? Well, the first thing that came to mind was the Seattle, the hidden secrets of the Seattle Space Needle. Hidden I found secrets there. That's right. As opposed to those unhidden secrets there. Pardon my redundancy there, but the Space Needle secrets there. I didn't know there was such a section of the Space Needle. And man, I would love to have been there because I've toured the Space Needle. I've been there. I've been here with you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There. And that would have been something to see. Tell us about that, Harriet. Well, first of all, have you been to the Space Needle since they renovated it? No. No. So um, a lot of people remember the Space Needle, and it was a special thing to go to the rotating restaurant. Um, So they have taken out, when they renovated the Space Needle, they, um, when they built it, construction wasn't as um, great as it is now. So now you can go to the top, to the observation deck, and it's totally glass. You can see out. There was something called a pony wall there before. So now it's um, much a much better view. And you can lean back on these glass seats and get a picture like you're kind of falling off the space. You know, it looks really great. And the restaurant <laughs> is gone. And they've taken the restaurant out and there's, so it's like all open and there's a bar in there and a very nice fancy bar, but they've made it a glass floor. So it's not only a rotating level, but it's a glass floor level. So it's really kind of cool. Some people can't handle it, but some people, when I've gone up, especially this summer with visitors, there were people like lying down on the glass floor as it moved around. So it's really great. And so um, there's a little area where it is not all glass. So for people who are a little nervous about that, you can stand <laughs> yes. or sit on Nervous that. or get dizzy. You know, I think I would get dizzy looking down. Yeah, it's a little disconcerting. But remember, it moves very, very slowly. But you, you can it gives you a great view of all the Seattle Center. So the secrets, though, um, when they were renovating, they discovered on the, I think the observation level or maybe the restaurant level that there was a time capsule that they had put in there and they forgot about it. So they found this time capsule 15 years after they were supposed to open it. They found it and it had like a key to the city and all sorts of things. And they are, they say they're going to put a new time capsule in, but they haven't done that yet. And I think the um, pandemic put them off schedule. But one of the secrets I discovered, and I guess it's not such a secret, but when the World's Fair was happening, um, people who, I guess, of a certain age, remember, you would go to World's Fairs or you would go to amusement parks, and there would be these machines where you would put a dollar, probably back then, in, and they would make you a wax um, figure of something. So it would be like monkeys at the zoo, or it might be a picture of a or a wax thing of a fish from an aquarium. Well, at the Seattle World's Fair, they had five of these machines on site. And there's one left that they've um, reconfigured or brought back to life. And it's in the gift shop at the Space Needle base there. And so you can go and get put in $5 now and get a tiny little Space Needle wax Space Needle. And it smells like Crayola crayons coming out of the machine. It's really that kind of, it's like a familiar smell to a lot of people, but it's a great souvenir. And it's a souvenir that you could have gotten if you were here during the Century 21 
Seattle World's Fair. Was that 1962, Gary? Yeah, you've talked about that before. I've talked to more than one person that said they could look out their front porch or wherever their vantage point was and see the Space Needle being erected. Yeah, it was this incredible, and it is, it was an incredible thing to build then. And it's this great souvenir and is now a symbol of the city. But people still are kind of amazed by it. It does look like a little bit like a spaceship that has landed downtown. But it's great. And and I still love going when I can afford it. It's gotten a little expensive to go. So um, a, a secret is that often if you if you buy a ticket, it will let you go usually in the morning and then come back at night. So that's a good tip. Oh, that is a good tip. Yes. So you could actually go twice yes. and, and see it during the day and also see it at night as well. Yeah. Well, that would great. be fun. It's great to go in the off season on because in Seattle we do get some clear days during the winter when there's not so many tourists here, and it's really a nice place to be when it's yeah. not totally crowded. Well, and it is the iconic structure of Seattle. I mean, you can always tell when they show various cities on the Weather Channel. You you recognize like the Arch in St. Louis and the Space Needle in Seattle and. You know, the yeah. Statue of Liberty in New York. I mean, you, you see things like that. And then you know what city it's in. Exactly. And so we yeah. always tell visitors, if you really want to see the Space Needle, go to the observation deck at downtown at the Columbia Tower because it's higher and it looks down on the Space Needle, less expensive, um, and, and gets you as good a view. Did not know that. So yeah. then you can kind of see that structure from a distance instead of being inside of it where you're looking outside. Exactly. That's, that's very yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Different perspective. One, one more insider thing about, I guess, uh, people who go up in the space needle, there's a thing where they've put a camera on a, on a tall building, either a hotel or an office building. That's like across the way from the space needle. And there's like a stand here for best picture spot there. So you could stand there and I guess you send a text or some sort of message and it takes your picture from across the way and then sends it to you on your phone. So it's gotten a little more high tech. It's fun. Very high tech. And if anything should be high tech, it should be in Seattle. Exactly. You would think. (laughs) That's right. Straight from the corridor, the high tech corridor in Puget Sound. Well, I named one. How about you, Suzanne? Oh, it's my turn? Yes. Um, I had a question about something that I saw once that completely amazed me when I was first in Seattle, and that is the troll under the bridge. And, yes. and you said there's actually a troll project, and so I'm curious about to know what the troll project is. Okay. Well, for people, we always forget um, that not everyone knows everything about Seattle, so the troll under the bridge um, I think it just had an anniversary, but they just kind of, it's in Fremont. It's under the um, Aurora Bridge there. And I think the Aurora Bridge, that's not what we think. It's not the Fremont Bridge. And um, and they just kind of refreshed it and they built a stairway up to the, towards the top of it. So it's a nice, it's an, another, it's a refreshed, nice place to go. And it is a troll um, under the bridge, like the three Billy Goats gruff kind of story. And it's holding a, a Volkswagen and it has a hubcap for an eye. So that's a great place where people always go, but there's this new temporary troll project in town. It is really 
um, enchanting people. So there's this Danish uh, artist, Thomas Dambo, who has made like 115 foot trolls all around the world. And he makes them out of salvaged or recycled wood and materials. And he places them. I think he works with a foundation and he places them in woods and in hidden places around cities. And it's partly to entertain people, but also partly to remind people to go outside and that um, nature can kind of get ruined by garbage. So he takes salvaged material. So it's come to Seattle, which seems so appropriate. Yes. And we've got five of them in the Pacific North, six in the Pacific Northwest. Wow. Five of them are in the Seattle or the greater Seattle area. And one is down in Portland. And I've seen three of them so far. So one of them is in my neighborhood, Ballard, outside the National Nordic Museum. So it's perfect. It should. And it's we thought that ours was special because it was made with a lot of shingles on, on the troll's body. And Ballard was the shingle headquarters of the world at some point, but he uses shingles in a lot of places. So there's one in um, West Seattle, in Lincoln Park, and there's one in Issaquah, um, and there's one on Bainbridge Island, and then, as I said, one down in Portland. And they're just really fun. They're charming. They're they're giant. <laughs> they're all doing uh, different things. We went and found, we had to take a little hike to find the one in Issaquah, and we noticed on our way into the woods that there were a lot of um, birdhouses set up around. And then when we got to the troll, we noticed that the troll was wearing a necklace of birdhouses. So even though he's made these trolls all over the world, each one of them is a little special for the site where he's put them. So they're really fun. And, and it's just great to see people getting their picture taken and, and making a point of going to try and find them all. Some of them when are easy to get to. Some of them are just a little hike. Right. When you talk about the troll project and there being five in Seattle, can you approximate the height on that? I We saw a troll over at Disney World that was probably about maybe uh, nine or 10 feet tall. You could almost like stand under the nose. So yeah. it was about that height. Are we talking about 10 feet or more than 10 feet? We're talking much bigger. These are 15 to 20 feet tall. Oh, they are. That yeah. is big. So, that so is if you really come big. across it in the woods, you know it. It's very, oh, they're, yeah. they're very big. They're very, they're not scary trolls. They're kind of more, uh, I want to say friendly troll, kind of totally friendly, but they're, they're usually, they seem to be smiling or everyone around them is smiling. Um, So, yeah, they're really big um, and there's a whole, you know, he brings a whole crew with him and gets local volunteers, I think, also to help him. And the one here in Ballard, the head has like like, small trees coming out of his head to be hair (laughs) at the top of his head. So they're really big. That's the Chia troll. Yes. (laughs) In In fact, I don't know if it was him, that artist, but I walk by the National Nordic Museum every day. And as they were building it, I saw a guy there with a garbage pail um, full of little trees. And I said, are you here to feed the troll? And he said, no, we're just here to finish the troll. And those ended up as as the hair. And he also has, it's a very, he's very good about it. He's got like little um, kind of bits of trees in the ears. So it looks like, you know, the hairy, a hairy old man kind of ear. (laughs) 
So they're just really great and people are enjoying them and they're going to be here supposedly just for three years. And um, I wasn't sure if that was kind of the contract or if the intention was like totems, like Native American totems, or that the intention was that the wood would degrade and it would go back to nature. So that's possible. Wow. You know, you've anticipated my next question because I can remember um, they had cows in Chicago one year where everybody decorated them for charity. Yes. And and then they sold them off for, for charity. And there were like 50 cows and you could walk up and down all the streets and take pictures of all these cows. And then they went away and I thought, oh, it would have been great to just leave them there. You know, yeah. probably they would have been vandalized and, you know, terrible things, but uh, it was fun to see cows in the big city, in the downtown area. So I was going to say, how long are they going to be there? Three years is a pretty long time. It, yes. And I would, bet if you go back to Chicago, you'll come across some of those cows. Yes. Yeah. We had we had a pig project, the same thing here in Seattle. And yes. you run into those pigs sometimes, the people who bought them have right. them in like, their restaurant or their garden or something. Yeah. Oh, I, I think that's fun. That's fun art, you know. Yes. It, it may not be the Mona Lisa or Michelangelo, but the cows and the pigs and the trolls, that is fun art. And I'm, yeah. I'm glad Seattle has has that going on. The Troll Project. So go out and see trolls. Visit a troll. I like that. Yeah. It's also a community, you know, when you talk about maybe not the Mona Lisa, it's accessible art, and in each of these places, it's people are interacting and talking about the art. So that part is nice. I'm now curious. We're going to get to, well, as a matter of fact, before I, I get to this other one, I, I found it fascinating in Seattle, and I believe in other places around the country as well. Did they ever find out who was leaving these monoliths from 2001 A Space Odyssey? Didn't they have one in uh gasworks park seems to me yeah they showed they showed up in seattle overnight and people it became a news story and i thought well this is pretty fascinating yes i can't remember if there was one here but you're right there were um in some national parks and um it, i guess it was a problem in one of the national parks that um somebody was doing that art project um kind of prank i don't i don't know but yeah Anything that gets people talking and thinking and looking, and if it doesn't hurt where it's been put, I think it's not a bad thing. All right, Gary. Okay, and with that uh, stratospheric idea in mind, <laughs> <laughs> stratospheric, we're talking about outer space here. Um, I'm curious to know about something that I had read about years and years ago. Go. And I still wonder whether or not it really happened or what the nature of this incident really was. And that is the Maury Island UFO incident there. And I believe there's a mural that commemorates it. Yes. So um, have, did you have you ever gone to Roswell, Mexico? No, so, only on so, TV. I've, I've seen yeah. plenty, but I know people who go there every year. But <laughs> yes, I haven't seen it. I'd like to sometime. That whole culture is kind of taken over the town. Yes, yeah, so that's like the big UFO destination. But um, the Pacific Northwest has a big role in the history of, I guess, UFO uh, culture. So um, the same year that supposedly that UFO landed and was um, captured 
in Roswell. Um, that's when, so that was 1947. Um, so a pilot who was flying over um, the mountains here in the Pacific Northwest between Mount Rainier and Mount Adams, he saw something flying really super too fast. And he called several it a of them. Yes. Kenneth Arnold. Yes. Yes. Okay. Several. And he called it, he termed flying saucers, they say. Um, it looked in like flying saucers. And then right around the same time, um, and, you know, we didn't have the internet yet. So I don't know if, if this guy could have like heard about what happened, but this, um, this guy um, was on a fishing boat and he claims that six flying saucers were over his fishing boat and dropped one of them caught on fire or something and dropped some stuff on his fishing boat and killed his dog and burned his son. And he like reported it. And then he says the next day, a man in black. So this is another thing that's been termed a man in black came to him and said, don't talk about it um, and threatened him or something. So then um, a couple of months later, he was interviewed by FBI agents and then the plane that those FBI agents were flying home on crashed. And so the guy who reported it was like, didn't happen. All of a sudden, he like changed his story. So whether it really didn't happen or he got scared, that's the Maury Island in incident. Many years later, local filmmaker made a documentary. I want to say, quote unquote, documentary about the incident um, and hired some local artists to make a mural that described or portrayed the incident. So it is now on the side of a shipping container um, near the pier where the Maury Island incident happened. So you can go down and see that. It shows a flying saucer beaming down onto this fishing boat and there's a man in black on the dock. Um, it's not cheesy, it's kind of charming. Um, but also you can, at the pier, you can look out and see where this might have happened. And as my mother used to say, it, it could happen. It could happen again. Well, it could. You know, if it happens at all, yes. You know, I, I try to be objective about it. But I am persuaded that some of these incidents are not as our government has reported them down through the years, typically with a, uh, an eye to dismissing them, to explaining them in more pro terms. That's why the mystery remains a mystery and intriguing to millions of people around the world. That particular case in Maury Island, what seemed to fall from the uh, spacecraft was a kind of slag. There. Ah, and I okay. think the guy tried to retrieve some of it, and whether it was on fire, too hot, couldn't put it in his boat there. He didn't have it to produce, as I recall. And if I'm wrong about that, somebody will correct me, I'm sure there. But the slag fell out of it. It was strange in every sense of the term there. And I've looked across at Maury Island there uh, any number of times, just wondering what happened in that vicinity. What was that really all about? And of course, this was about 40 years after the event when I was there looking at it. But I thought, wow, I just I just wonder. And it's great to have that lingering mystery and now a mural to commemorate it. That's a great thing. I hope to see it in person someday. Take some photos. Yes. And, you know, the unexplained or whatever, um, just as you were talking about that, um, we had some thunder and lightning here which is very rare. So who knows what's happening out there? Well, that's right. Yes, the thunder and lightning, rare there and where we live here in Florida, not rare. <laughs> <laughs> lightning strikes, people hit by lightning. 
Uh, it's Florida's the lightning capital of the United States. There are more lightning strikes here than anywhere. Oh my goodness! And well, here I, very ex- rare. So I don't know if that's a warning. I experienced yeah. it many, many years ago, probably. Oh, gosh, it might be uh, 20 or more years ago. But there was a storm and I heard this thunderclap and I thought, wow, that's unusual for Puget Sound. It is. And so if we if we lose power, that's why. Because of the thunder? Yeah. Sometimes, you know, lights, the lights were flickering when that when the light. Or somebody happened. blew out birthday candles and all the lines <laughs> went down. Because yeah. That was what I recall when we lived in in Seattle was every time it got windy, everybody lost power. And that was there yes. in Bockle and in the Ken Auburn Valley. If a butterfly hits a power line, okay, you're going to be out of power for a day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Drives you crazy. So, uh, yes. yes, that's all part of what the charm of being there in Puget Sound, which is such a delightful place. It's chock full of history. A lot of it a lot has gone away. And this is this is off script here, but, you know, Suzanne and I, we watch Sven Gulli most weeks, not every week, but we just have fun with the old time horror concept on Saturday night, you know. And last Saturday, it was one of the Night Stalker. And in fact, this one was called The Night Strangler with the character Carl Kolchak, played so well by Darren McGavin. And it was set in Seattle. And they actually filmed in Seattle about 1972. And there we saw the Alweg monorail, which I believe goes back to 10 years earlier from that time for the World's Fair. Whatever happened to the monorails? It's still around. Can you still ride it? Absolutely. And in fact, um, not too long ago, they made it part of the the bus system. So now if you've got a bus pass, you can ride the monorail. So it's still there. Um, I have a memory that it used to have two stops, but it only has one stop. Now it goes from Seattle Center to Westlake Center. Um, but yeah, you can still ride it. And I think a lot of people who live downtown use it for commuting. A lot of tourists just love to ride it. Um, and the last time I rode it was um, to go to an event downtown. We took the bus to Seattle Center and then took the light rail. It's still, um, it's, I mean, the monorail, it's still really fun to go on. And it's really fun to see little kids riding it. They are they are always sitting up as close up front to the driver as they can. And it goes through the Mopat Museum. Yes, yes. In fact, there was a measure, a lot of Seattleites will recall this, where I think they were going to run it all the way out to Lake City. That would be nice. And they decided not to do that. So, I mean, you know, things can be approved, but they don't always happen. Right. But our light rail is expanding. But the monorail, just one stop. Um, and it reminds people of, of the monorail at Disney World or Disneyland. It's just really fun. Let's go ahead and take our break. Bottom of the hour right here and now. We'll take our one and only break. And when we come back, more of the treats of Seattle, the delights, the heritage, the legacy, a lot of which still exists. Some things no longer there. And what about the neighborhoods of Seattle? They are changing. And we'll talk about that with Harriet Vasquez as well. She is the author of 111 Places in Seattle that you must not miss. And we'll get to as many of them as we can on the other side of this break. We're Manson Mitchell, and we're sure glad you've joined us today. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family 
and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed back Christopher Renstrom, astrologer extraordinaire, with a preview of what to expect in 2024. We'll also read horoscopes. On Saturday, Judith Paulich talks about her book, Why Can't We Be More Like Trees? A fascinating conversation about the world of plants, animals, and humans on the planet today. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Alternative Talk 1150, the talk of the sound. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Harriet Baskus. She's the author of 111 Places in Seattle That You Must Not Miss. Harriet, in addition to this absolutely wonderful book of places around Seattle that people can go to on a rainy day or a sunny day, um how let us know how we can connect with you what your website is social media anything that you would like to share with our listeners okay so um place where people can find me every day is on my website stuck at the airport.com which talks a lot about airports but also because as my husband always reminds me not everyone loves to stay in the airport um i also talk about places outside the airport all over the world so um I'm excited to go to San Diego in a couple of weeks and I'm going to talk about the airport and what you can see near there. So um, stuck at the airport.com um, hbaskus at Gmail. If you want to send me a tip on um, a, something we should put in the, in the book for the third edition, I can see because we're on zoom that you've got the first edition of 111 places in Seattle that you must not miss. But in September, so um, the book came out just almost a, little over a year ago, and it did pretty well coming out after the pandemic. And so the a second printing went in, came out in September, and there's some updates in there, some new places. Um, and so the third, I'm working on uh, tips for the third edition right now. So hbaskas, H-B-A-S-K-A-S at gmail.com if you want to send me some tips on things that you love in the city, anybody in the city that should be in there. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. Speaking of SeaTac, 
And I'd love yes. to know if you have any updates, anything interesting going on there. I'm sure there always is. But I have a little anecdote to share. Coming back from Vancouver, crossing back into the USA, I showed my ID to uh, somebody. I They were just checking, you know, it was normal stuff. But uh, they asked to see my driver's license. Fine. There. And he goes, where do you live? I said, SeaTac. There. And he goes, you live at the airport. <laughs> And I said, no, I live in SeaTac, Washington. There, it's, it was incorporated the same year as Federal Way, as I recall. I said that to him. And he goes, hmm, I hadn't heard about that. There is a city of SeaTac surrounding the airport. It wasn't incorporated. It was just the SeaTac area when I first moved there in 1989. There, but shortly thereafter, it became a municipality in its own right. Yes, it is a destination and it is an address. Um, and in fact, I just asked. Um, my publisher to send a copy of the book to somebody who works inside the airport. And they, they thought that I had made a mistake when I said the address was SeaTac, Washington, but yeah, it's a real place. Yes. Um, but speaking of living in the airport um, in Vancouver at the Vancouver airport, when they had their anniversary, I think it was their 90th anniversary about maybe 10 years ago. Now they did have a, they hired someone to live inside the airport for 90 days. Um, and I really wanted that job, but I, I didn't live in Canada, so I couldn't, I could just report on it. But yeah, someone, I mean, they gave him a, there's a very beautiful Fairmont hotel right in the airport. So they gave him a room there. They didn't make oh, him wow. sit on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was a little jealous, but it was nice. I remember that Tom Hanks movie where he spent a lot of time in, living yes. at the airport. I can't remember <laughs> the name of that movie, but uh, and it was based on a true story too. Yes, that was basically that's called they called that movie Terminal. There's a new movie out now with Meg Ryan and I forget the name of the other um, that and they're stuck at the airport. So I'm waiting to see that on an airplane. I'm going to wait and see it on an airplane. Meg Ryan, you say? Yeah. Wow. Grandma Meg. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say you know, they'll do a movie with her sometime. You've still got mail? Yes. <laughs> well, good for her. You know, people just want to get in and out of airports as fast as they can. And at the same time, if you ever have to spend any time at an airport, you find out about all the interesting places there are, the little nooks and crannies where they've got eateries, all the little places that you can buy candy and newspapers and magazines and that kind of stuff. And occasionally something really interesting. I remember at the Seattle airport seeing all the fish on the ground. Well, that's, that's different. Right. That's, that's interesting. Right. And will so you, you indulge, go, yeah. Will you indulge me a little? Let me talk about yeah. our airport. So, yes. Um, so one thing that people don't, um, it's its still pretty new and it's come back after the pandemic. In the old days, we would all be able to bring go to the gate um, and bring our family or friends to the gate and wave to them or be there when they come off the plane. So Seattle is one of about five airports in the country where you can still do that you can apply for a day pass to, to go to the airport and just spend the day there or or have um, go shopping or have dinner with, with somebody who's leaving. Um, and it's very easy. You just go to their website and sign up. So um, I do that often, <laughs> just go and hang out at the airport um, because it is a fun place because there's lots of art. One of the, one of the art pieces is a long, I forget which con uh, concourse it is. It might be the B concourse. If you look on the floor in the terrazzo flooring, there are brass fish all along the way 
and kids spot them, of course. Um, and they're most of them are regular fish, and one or two of them have suitcases. They're fish with suitcases. But oh, that's maybe an cute. umbrella. That's cute. Yes, yes we but, have seen that. Well, I've walked that path. I thought that yes. was very cute. Yes. Yeah. And Seattle um, is one of the first airports to start buying art. When it, um, and so we've got, a, they don't like me to talk about how valuable it is, but an incredibly valuable collection of art inside that airport. There's a Robert Rauschenberg, there's a Louise Nevelson um, work that was bought in the 1960s. Um, so that has become very valuable over the over time. And they're still buying art, a lot of art by Northwest artists. And so it is like a art museum. If, um, if you go, I, I always encourage people to go to the airport as early as they can. But one of the things in so many airports, our airport, probably your airport, there's art there. And it it's not, you might not go to a museum to see this art, but you'll see it in your airport. Interesting. We were in the O'Hare airport where they had, what was that big giant monstrous something that they had? Was it a some big animal that they had dressed in a Blackhawks uniform. Do you yes. remember? Yes. So SeaTac was- It was like 40 feet high, something yeah. like that. It was huge. Well, the Tampa airport down in Florida, they've got a giant flamingo now in the middle of the terminal. Oh, they do? That, yes, okay. that you must go get your picture taken with. And in Seattle, um, 300 people a day who are not flying can come in and just hang out at the airport. So it's good for the shops, but it's also good, I just think, for travelers because you kind of sometimes want to have your friends or family with you to the very last minute or just seeing them when you come off yes. the plane. You know, yeah. That's why we travel. Yes. Yes. I, I I would like to see some modification of all those restrictions uh, because it, it's hard, especially if you're dealing with elderly people and you get a little concerned about their finding their way, you know, by themselves. And especially so, as yeah. airports get bigger and bigger or more of complicated course. or of especially course. as the holidays come and they get more crowded. Yeah. Besides SeaTac, what is uh, one or two uh, favorite of yours? Oh, we'll never stop talking now. Um, I love San Francisco. San Francisco is one of two airports in the country that have an accredited museum program. So there's a curator, there's a real, like, it's like the Museum of Modern Art. It's a real museum there. And at any one time at the San Francisco airport, there will be 20 museum quality ex ex exhibits around the terminals. So whenever, wow. I, whenever I travel, I'm that person wow. that always takes the longest layover so that I don't miss anything. Wow. So that, that airport is great. Phoenix Airport also has an accredited museum program and a art collection, and they do a really wonderful job with, um, with art, permanent art and temporary exhibitions. Um, really, it's like, and uh, Houston also has an art curator and a very large collection of art. So totally worthwhile. Often we go to an airport and we get through security and we go to our gate and stay there. Yes. But, um, but if, if you just kind of relax a little and walk around, it will be a cultural experience often. All right. Back to Seattle. Back okay. to Seattle, back to <laughs> neighborhoods. This this whole idea of Ballard being, you know, when I first moved there, people made jokes that it was Ufda and Oompa land. 
And it's not that way anymore. I think, uh, and Harry, when you and I were arranging this interview, didn't you say to me that it's one of the places where uh, younger professionals in particular could move to and afford a house rather than having to rent? In the old days, exactly. When I moved to Seattle in 1988 from Portland, Ballard was the only neighborhood we could afford. And we we had come from community radio, so we couldn't afford much, but we could afford um, not too long after we moved here, we could afford a little bungalow in Ballard. And these days, I mean, I know, you know, everything costs more these days, but these days in Ballard, um, a little bungalow is going, those are million dollar houses. So um, it's, Ballard has certainly changed. When I moved here, there was, um, even in Seattle, there was one place to get a good cup of coffee and it was in a little uh, card shop where the guy really liked coffee and he would make you a coffee if you were nice to him. Um, and now, of course, there's coffee, great coffee everywhere, but every, it's totally changed. It was very um, Scandinavian. The National Nordic Museum was the, Nas- was the Nordic Heritage Museum, and it was in a school, and it had kind of a, um, I liked it better, but it had lots of different, each, each room of the schoolhouse was a different uh, culture. So the Danish room, the, the Norwegian room, the Swedish room. Um, so yeah, it's changed, but there is still, the, Nor- the Nordic Museum brings back the Scandinavian culture, um, and every year we have a parade. Um, so that's still here, but now we have, just like any other, I guess, gentrified neighborhood, we've got lots of restaurants, lots of bars, um, art galleries, things like that. I've had people talk coffee with me. You know, what kind of coffee do you like, this, that, or the other thing? And they'll bring up some detail about a blend that they like. Have you heard of it? And I said, I lived for over 20 years in Seattle, yeah. <laughs> you know, which is exaggerating my knowledge, but I indicate to them that, yes, I have an affinity for coffee there. And it's a, it, it's a subtle art, even though yes. when you go to Starbucks, one of the first things that I notice, and many people talk about this, it has a kind of burnt smell to it. You know, when you're in a Starbucks, as opposed to coffee shop, coffee, which I have to say, almost doesn't taste like coffee to me. I go, this is like, dishwater compared to the coffee that I'm used to having lived in Seattle and being, you know, at one time, not so much anymore, but a habitué of Starbucks, which brings up another question. When people go to Pike Place, Harriet Vasquez, and they say, I am going to go inside and take (laughs) pictures. I'll wait. And the line's out the door and down the sidewalk there. I've had that experience. And I've had the experience before the crowd showed up when Starbucks was still a new thing. Are they really today going to the original Starbucks location? Uh, No, they're not. Um, I think the original Starbucks location was um, around the corner, but now this is in Pike Plates Market. um, And they have some elements, I think, from the original store, but it is not the original Starbucks. But people will line up um, and good for them. (laughs) So they can say they were there. They can buy a coffee mug. There's a lot of people who collect coffee mugs in the Starbucks from each city, but that is not the original Starbucks. I hope we're not bursting any bubbles here. But um, if you have guests coming to Seattle to visit you and they say they want to go there, um, bring them somewhere else. Bring them to your uh, coffee shop in your neighborhood. The great thing that Starbucks has done is, is made it possible for there to be so many wonderful local independent coffee shops well that they have i remember a simpsons cartoon where it was every other 
every other store was a Starbucks as Bart Simpson was walking down the aisle of a shopping mall. And then there was a place that was closed there. And somebody said to him, that's going to become a Starbucks <laughs> in, in University Village. Suzanne yeah, so and I have been there where you go. I think there's like four, three, if you include four. the one upstairs at Barnes and Noble. Mm -hmm. It's like, you cannot escape Starbucks. That's right. But there's also so many other places like the the line in our house is god forbid you have to walk a block to get some coffee i mean there's starbucks but then there's so many other places and then there's coffee in places that you don't expect it sometimes i think there is i think it's still there's a dentist office that is also a coffee uh, espresso stand and there's um inside hospital. I, I guess I, I grew up i would have loved to have this like ho hospitals of course have coffee really great coffee now um, and I wouldn't have expected that hardware stores. They're just everywhere. It's, I like it. I need we're, it. We're 3,000 miles from Seattle. <laughs> and we have a Starbucks walking distance two blocks away. <laughs> yeah. So. Now, um, the, the Columbia Tower that I mentioned before, which has a great observation deck, before the pandemic, it had the tallest Starbucks in the country. You would go, in order to get to that observatory, you would have to change elevators on i don't know on some floor the 30th floor or something and you would you would pass the tallest starbucks and that was also a place people had to find out about it wasn't very well known but i would tell people that was a better place to go to than the one in pipeless market but it's i think it's a it's an uh in a conference room now well, all right now that we're caffeinated yes uh, what else do you have on your list that particularly appeals to you harriet well, I always love talking about museums in Seattle. And I want, uh, we, we talked about the um, last resort fire department, perhaps. Yes, great. Since, um, since a fire engine just went by my house, I don't know if you could hear that. So um, like Chicago, and you mentioned Chicago, Seattle had a great fire. A lot of cities had great fires, which destroyed the downtown. And that's um, one reason why neighborhoods, you know, one of the earliest reasons why neighborhoods changed because they got burned down. So um, Seattle's Great Fire was in 1889. And the story is supposedly that a pot of glue in a woodworking um, business in Pioneer Square got kicked over or fell over and started a big fire. And at that point, buildings were mostly made of wood. The fire department, there was no official fire department. There were volunteers. And so 25 blocks of downtown disappeared. And from that came a professional fire department, a better water system, the first fire pump uh, fire engine, um, and, and the underground, I guess. They decided to rebuild uh, downtown Seattle above because where it had originally been built would, would flood a lot. Because it didn't flood during that fire, it would have been helpful. But so over the years, like any community, the history, the history of the fire department, the fire department has a history. And so we've got a museum, it's called the Last Resort Fire Department. And they say in a last resort, you could call on them to come help. But it's a community of mostly retired firefighters and people who um, grew up in firefighting families, I think. And they have like 25 old fire engines. One of them dates to before the Seattle fire. And they keep eight of the fire engines right downtown in what used to be for 80 years, 
was the headquarters of the Seattle Fire Department. It's right in Pioneer Square. And they've got really beautifully maintained old fire engines, old fire boxes, old uniforms, old equipment. And it's just, and it's open one afternoon a week, um, but it's, it's clearly loved and maintained and cared for by people who love the history of the fire department. And it's very important, of course, to our lives then and now. So I love I love going there, and I love just just how how much they care for it. It is it and a critical first responder locale, remembering the legacy, the history, and some yes. of the tragic. Unfortunately, I remember I was living there when the firefighters died because of the May Pang fire. I believe no, what May yes. Pang? I think I'm talking about John Lennon's old girlfriend. Yeah. It was it <laughs> there? Uh, but right around the corner, the Pang from the, food factory. Yes. yes, right around the corner from the last resort fire department, which is inside the fire department head old fire department headquarters, is a monument to those firefighters. So. Um, it, it's a little generic now. People, a lot of people don't remember that fire that you're referencing, um, but it's a, a, a firefighter's memorial, and now it's to all firefighters that oh, have lost their idea. lives. Yeah. Yes. Speaking of museums, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about was the Connections Museum, Num number 17 on your list of 111 places yes. in Seattle that you must not miss. It's Tell another us about, one, another yeah, one that I love, and it was one of the first places I went to when I moved to Seattle. And it used to be called, I think, the, the old telephone museum. So um, again, if you're a certain age, you remember when each of our regions had its own local telephone company. So um, Pacific Northwest Bell, um, or I think that's what it's called. And there was a switching station. Everything's now computerized and happens in a second. But in the old days, telephone, if you made a telephone call, it had to go through, and you can see it in this museum, a whole switching station that could fill up half the floor of an office building or what looks like an office building, but an old building. And so um, the people who worked on those old telephones and in the old switching stations and would come to your house sometimes to fix your telephones um, kept that equipment and kept those switching stations in order and turned it into a museum. And so you can go there now. It's an old switching station. It's in Georgetown. It used to be, I learned about it because it was right behind where the hat and boots used to be. And that was a big uh, statue that got saved and moved down, down the road further into Georgetown. But you could go and there's two floors of everything to do with the history of telephones and communication. And one thing that they have there, we talked about the Space Needle, is when they opened the Space Needle in 1962, they had the rotating restaurant at the top of the Space Needle, and they wanted um, to have you. They wanted people to be able to make a phone call from there, like they did in those movies in the in the um, the fancy bars. But the the place was moving, so somebody. That's when the first wireless telephone was invented. So you could be at your table at the uh, Space Needle restaurant and they would bring over a phone so that you could call people back home and say, guess where I am and guess what I'm talking about. So the first wireless phone was invented and they've got that there in the museum. Um, they have really like a whole cabinet of princess phones in every single color. They've got uh, an old 
um, British red telephone booth. And what's wonderful, when I first started going there, it was just, it was old, literally old men who used to work for the telephone company. But those old men have kind of phased out. Um, and now young tech people are in there um, really taking care of the equipment and fixing the equipment and putting it online. It's got a website and an Instagram. And it's become very a very hip destination now for young tech people to go and see all this wonderful old stuff. And I don't know if you're around very young kids anymore, but if you show them a telephone, like an old telephone with a rotary, they don't know what those are. So it's really a history place. Um, I was in a, <laughs> a, in a restaurant the other day and my telephone rang and I've got an old ringer on it and um, a tiny little girl from a table um, across the way was like, she didn't know what was happening. Her mother had to come over and explain to her that that's what telephones used to sound like. So it's, it's history, it's technology, mm -hmm. um, it's community. It's really, I just, I love going there and it's only open. I think Sundays from two to four, another one that's very volunteer, um, volunteer minded. So I love that. It's kind of a secret. Very few people know about it. Well, and what you're talking about today, just scratching the surface with the 111 places that you have uh, in your book is that there are all these things to do, places to go, things to see in and around the Seattle area in all of the neighborhoods. And they're just like little gems. And you, you need to, you need to source them and go find them. On a, on a rainy day, you know, don't just stay inside and read a book, but actually get out and, and go to some of these wonderful museums and places that are around Seattle, because there is so much to do in such a, a vibrant and wonderful city like Seattle. And one thing I like to remind people is that unless we go and support those kinds of places, they won't be there when you do want to go or when you do want to impress an out of town or that you know that in the inside places. So like the Pinball Museum, which is in the International District, is a great place to go on a rainy day like this. You pay one admission and you can play pinball machines from all the history of pinball machines. Um, mm. you know, often you just see them in a museum, but these you can play. So yeah. So I like supporting places where people have kind of put their life and I guess sometimes their life savings, but also putting their volunteer time into it. It's part of the charm of Seattle. Harriet, talking to you is so much fun. We just look forward to the next time where we can talk about other places because it just leaves me smiling to think that all these fun places are there to see and you're there documenting them. So thank you. Thank you very thank much you very for being much, with Harriet. us today. Great to talk thank to you, you again. Thanks for inviting me. All right. Thank you for listening to us, ladies and gentlemen. Always appreciated. We hope you have, well, you got some stormy weather there, but that will pass. We hope you have a great weekend and a great week ahead. Here's what's coming up next week on Manson Mitchell. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed back Christopher Renstrom, astrologer extraordinaire, with a preview of what to expect in 2024. We'll also read horoscopes. On Saturday, Judith Paulich talks about her book, Why Can't We Be More Like Trees? A fascinating conversation about the world of plants, animals, and humans on the planet today. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150.